0: Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness, a teaching series from the stories of the Torah. Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. Primarily in the Wandering series, we've been looking at the book of Numbers, which in Hebrew is called in the wilderness. That's the name of the book in the Hebrew. Uh, in Hebrew, the books of the Old Testament are named after the first word, of the book. And so, uh, the book of numbers is called in the wilderness in Hebrew. And we've been looking primarily at numbers. We, we pretty much finished with numbers last night. We looked at chapter 32 of numbers and, um, what follows from there is chapter 33 is the, um, sort of where where all they traveled to, just sort of a recap of that, a summary of everywhere they went, and then after that, sort of the allotments of the land and those kinds of things and how that was going to be settled and laid out. And so as we move into Deuteronomy, um, we don't have time, obviously, to read large sections of it, so uh, I'm going to just real quickly give a very bad skimming of the the content of uh, Deuteronomy. But I do want to talk a little bit just about the... The name here. And the name Deuteronomy uh, comes from Greek, the deuteronomion, and deuter meaning second, and onomion meaning law or command. And so the Deuteronomy basically means second law. And it doesn't mean that there is a second law that is given, but what it means is it's a second reading or a second hearing of the law. And uh, so we find Moses as he's on Moab, he has to stay there. He does not get to enter the promised land because of his sin, because he deprived the Lord of an opportunity to show his holiness and took credit for something that the Lord was, was doing a gift to the people when he um, struck the, the rock to bring water out. And so, uh, He's sort of giving them a send off. He's letting them know, I've put Joshua in charge, listen to him, treat him as you would me, but also let's remember everything that's happened and let's remember everything that we've learned and let's go over all the laws again and that sort of thing. And so, um, the, the Hebrew name for Deuteronomy, by the way, is, uh, words, which I think is very cool. So, because that's the first word in the, the, the book of Deuteronomy begins. These were these are the words of, you know, and so the first real word of Deuteronomy in Hebrew is words. And so that is the name of the book. And we've been looking primarily at storytelling structure in a lot of this. And so one thing about a, a, a great story, as it kind of goes around that story circle, if you remember looking at that way back during the Genesis series, is that you're going to kind of end up where you started, but everything is going to be different now, right? So In some ways, uh, even though Genesis begins with sort of the creation of the universe, it really begins with chapter 12 with the covenant with Abraham. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to give you a people that will live on this land. And now here we are at the end of Deuteronomy, all the way at the other end of the Torah. Now the people are about to go into that land. And the promise is about to be fulfilled. It's taken centuries. It's taken war. It's taken slavery. It's taken all these things to happen and transpire. The 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 rebellion, the promises, the the holiness, the um, the judgment, and um, and now the people are finally going to enter this promised land. And how beautiful is it that this book is called Words, because that's how Genesis begins with the word of God. And so, again, that emphasis on God's word and his word speaking things into being, including uh, our very selves, our very lives, God's breath um, giving us life. So as we read through Deuteronomy, Moses kind of gives a recap of things. Um, He recaps Ten Commandments and he um, calls on Israel to destroy all the idolatrous nations currently living in the place where they're going to go and sort of warns against self-righteousness, and recalls all of their rebellions, reminds them of the things that they've done wrong. They talk about uh, where and how to worship. Uh, chapter uh, 13 through and beyond, they begin talking about false prophets and idolatry, forbidden foods, giving to the Lord, debt, uh, poor, slaves, festivals, for, uh, forbidden worship, judicial procedures, warnings about a king, uh, sort of foreshadowing for what will come later in uh, particularly First, first Samuel, 2 Samuel. Um, and largely all, all of the, the the evil and division that, that really ensues after that. Uh, warnings about wanting a king, about having a king, uh, pr- being able to provide for the priests, uh, paganism versus worship, rules for war, fair treatment of all people, laws about life, family, gender, sexuality, and, and a big emphasis on cleanliness versus impurity, how they're to remain unstained from the world, to remain clean. And so by the time we get to chapter 26, we get a covenant uh, summary. And I believe that's the the, the slides of, of scripture that I have here in the keynote. And uh, we will take time to, to read that. Before I get to that, though, I want to back up <clears throat> now that we've kind of zipped through done a, sort of a, uh, a future looking review of Deuteronomy. I want to go back to sort of where things began. And I want to look at Genesis 3. And so here's this moment in Genesis 3. This is, this is what sort of begins turning the whole world upside down. The whole cosmos is created. Light is separated from darkness. The darkness is sent scattering. Light has been made abundant. And the, the crowning achievement of creation is, is the human. And not just the human, because the human alone was not good, because it was not good for the human to be alone. But when the human fell asleep and from his side was uh, fashioned a, a woman, and so then there was the human and the woman now you have adam and eve the word adam just means human Uh, adam in hebrew just means human and so um, now you have the man and the woman and it was at that point the entire cosmos was very good and it was at that point that god rested from his creating and very shortly after that we have genesis 3 and it says then the man and his wife heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? John Acuff uh, is a humorous writer on... um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, lots of places. He used to run a website called Stuff Christians Like, and uh, now he has his own uh, site. He goes around, does lots of speaking, does stand-up comedy, is uh, a gifted storyteller. He's a funny guy and he's a believer. And uh, back a long time ago on his Stuff Christians Like blog, he talked about this moment here in Genesis chapter three, when God asks, who told you that you were naked? And in that post, uh, this is just a little snippet from his post. Uh, John takes those questions and, and converts them into questions that we might hear today. Who told you that you were not enough? Who told you that I didn't love you? Who told you that there was something outside of me you needed? Who told you that you were ugly? Who told you that your dream was foolish? Who told you you would never have a child? Who told you that you would never be a father? Who told you that you weren't a good mother? Who told you that without a job, you aren't worth anything? Who told you that you'll never know love again? Who told you that this was all there is? Who told you that you were naked? And it's man's sin of eating from the tree that opens his eyes to his condition. And once his eyes are opened, he can only focus on that which is wrong, the fact that he's naked. And because that's all he can focus on, he becomes afraid and he hides from God. And there's a great lesson there because I've been thinking, you know, there's in a time like this, I think we all have been doing a lot more thinking than we normally do. You know, the volume gets turned down on everything else. And sometimes you're just left with just your thoughts. And sometimes it's stuff you've avoided trying to think about by filling your life with with busyness, with work or with people or, or whatever. And so sometimes you just turn the TV off and you turn the music off and you sit in the quiet and all these thoughts kind of rise to the surface and it's never good stuff. At least for me, it's not, you know, it's always like just the negative things. And, um, you know, that time that you were trying to make a joke and ended up offending somebody or, uh, something you said to somebody one time that was just super mean or some way you've treated somebody that you love. And it's just like all this stuff comes back just from years ago, bad choices you've made, bad judgment, You know, and it just kind of haunts you and you start to define yourself by all this negativity. You start to define yourself by all this bad stuff. You start to define yourself by the sins of your past. And what a beautiful thing that God comes into that tohu abohu, that chaos, that welter and waste. God's word, God's light comes into that darkness and says, hey, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were darkness? Who told you you were lost? I came for you. I came here for you. I fought for you. I died for you. I love you. I created you. You're made in my image. And so Genesis begins, and right away we see that there's peril and promise, right? That uh, there's light and there's darkness. There is, um, man is made in God's image, but he's also evil from his youth. He's capable of great good, but uh, also completely uh, selfish given the opportunity And so we're fighting this the whole time. And you'll remember that quote from the Leon Cass book back in the Genesis series. Is there a, 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 a way of life that we can figure out so that we can live somewhere amidst the peril and the promise of what it means to be a human being? And we see that in Genesis, the thing that really starts to solve everything is the idea of forgiveness, is the idea of embracing holiness by embracing forgiveness, both receiving forgiveness when we when it needs receiving and giving forgiveness when it needs giving. And so Exodus, Leviticus, the laws, numbers, all the stories and miracles and wonders that happened in the wandering in the desert, and the, and the discipline and the punishment even, the plagues even. And now here we are in Deuteronomy, going back over everything, recapping everything that's happened in the books previous. And we end up at a place where Moses calls attention to this idea that when we are uh, standing there in the garden, we have a chance to focus on the fact that we were made in God's image or we have the chance to focus on the fact that we are naked and afraid. And he gives this this covenant summary. Here in Deuteronomy 26. So if you want to follow along, we're in Deuteronomy 26 in verse 16. I'll have the scripture on the screen. You feel free to read along in your own uh, Bible if you like. And so Moses reminds them as he's wrapping up his, um, his, his retelling of the law. The Lord your God is commanding you this day to follow these statutes and ordinances, You must be careful to follow them with all your heart and all your soul. Today, you have affirmed that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes, commands, and ordinances, and obey him. And today, the Lord has affirmed that you are his special people, as he promised you, that you are to keep all his commands, that he will elevate you to praise, fame, and glory above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a holy people to the Lord your God, as he promised. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven so that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? And it is not across the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it to us so that we may follow it? But the message is is very near you in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may follow it. See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen, and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and worship them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not live long in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. So that you and your descendants may live, love the Lord, your God, obey him and remain faithful to him. For he is your life and he will prolong your life in the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I love this. Uh, these recaps that um Moses puts out, uh, I skipped through some sections there, Deuteronomy 26, and then jumped into uh, chapter 30. But he puts this before them, and the big choice before them is this. Choose life. You have before you life and death, blessing and curse, abundance and adversity, peril and promise. And Moses implores them, begs them, as he sends them into the promised land, choose life. And so the story really comes full circle from the beginning of Genesis, where the word of God speaks life into existence. Masterful storytelling, beautiful storytelling. And what's even more wonderful is it's true. It really comes from the God that made everything, the God that gave life, and his words continue to give life. And so before us, every day, day, they're set the the option. Are we going to choose life or death? Are we going to choose peril or promise? Are we going to choose uh, blessing or curse, adversity um, or adventure? What are we going to do? Moses says, choose life. So this is the phrase I really want you to go away with tonight, remembering, is this idea of choosing life. And of course, so much of Scripture talks about choosing life. One in particular that comes to mind is Romans chapter 12. This is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is... Is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So, this is a great verse coming out of finishing the Torah. Here, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the Roman church, a church which, um, in the beginning, was almost entirely Jews. Almost all of the very first churches were mostly Jews. As Paul started doing his missionary journeys uh, between uh, Peter and, and, and Paul, Gentiles began being worked into the churches once the apostles realized God really does want the Gentiles to be a part of this. You can see that take, take place throughout the book of Acts, beginning with uh, Peter and Cornelius and and, and and going on through some of those stories. And so, as Paul begins to do some church planting, he plants some Gentile churches, but the Roman church was largely a lot of Jews. Well, then one of the Caesars expelled all the Jews from Rome. See, when the Jews and the Christians started uh, sort of bickering and fighting with each other, and the Jews really wanted to get rid of the Christians and, and say that they were all following a a, a cursed Messiah. Remember, Jesus was hung, hanged on a tree, right? And so because he was impaled on a tree or nailed to a tree, that meant, according to the law, that he was cursed. And so anyone who followed him was cursed. And so all these Christians that say that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but that Jesus is God. They're all blasphemers, and it was causing a big problem between um, the Jews who did not believe in Jesus and the Jews who did believe in Jesus, people that we would now call Christians. And so there was just a lot of infighting going on. And from a Roman perspective, Romans who are neither Christian nor Jewish, what they see is a bunch of Jews fighting with each other right? And so they just want to get rid of all the Jews. It seems like some kind of Jewish problem. So that seems to be the impetus for why um, all the Jews were expelled from Rome at a certain time. So for uh, some time, I think it's like 15 years, something like that, somewhere between 12, 17 years, something like that, uh, there's no Jews in Rome. Then the Caesar changes hands. One Caesar dies, a new Caesar comes in. When that happens, the laws of the previous Caesar are, are gone. They're forgotten. They're, everything's kind of reset. And so the Jews are able to come back to Rome. Well, they come back to a church that had been only the Gentile Christians remained. And so it had been an entirely Gentile church for, you know, close to 15 years, whatever the time period was. So now all these Jews come back and they say, no, 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 you're not doing this right. You know, you have to do all these other things. And the Gentiles say, well, I don't know who you are because I've been in this church for 10 years and I've never seen you before. And I don't know why you're telling us to do church and so there was a lot of arguing and fighting and so paul felt the need to write this letter to a church that he had not yet been to but was hoping to come and see and that's the church in rome and so that's where we get the book of romans it's the letter to the roman church and much of the letter deals with the jews and gentiles being able to get along with each other because of their identity in christ because they define themselves by christ and not by being gentile and not by being jewish because they define themselves by being in christ there should be unity, and they should be working together. And so there's two things that have plagued the church from the very beginning of time. And it's the same two biggest things that plague the church now. One is uh, religiosity. Okay. Christianity is a religion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about just religion. God sets up some organized religion. God, God has you know some, some thoughts and ideas and rules and commands about worship. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who create such a religion that it puts a stranglehold on people. It's a a religion that stands on people's necks rather than encouraging them to live. So this religion and religious tradition and adhering to that rather than adhering to the word word of God, that's been one problem. And the other problem is pagan living, worldly living. So in the early church, you had Jews that said, yeah, we love this Jesus guy. We are disciples of Jesus, but we're still going to do everything Jewishly, and we're going to make everybody else do do everything Jewishly. And then you had some of the Gentiles who said, hey, I love this Jesus guy. He saved me. He's given me forgiveness. Hooray. And now I'll go back to living my old life. And so obviously those two ideas cannot coexist in different churches, dealt with different strengths of both of those problems, but both of those problems existed in the very first churches. They're not new problems, and they're not problems that have gone away, unfortunately. We still deal with those two problems today. They're the two main problems that plague churches. And Paul gives the answer to the Roman church the same way he would give it to our churches today, where he says the answer is not to grasp desperately to tradition. And the answer is not to uh, have an open hand with everything that the world serves up. The answer instead is to follow Jesus. That's what he has asked us to do. And if we follow Christ, if we trust and follow Jesus, he will give us the answer and we can both live in unity, no matter what our background, no matter um, what our understanding of some of the finer points of things are. And so about two thirds of the way through this letter to the Roman church, he writes this section And he lets them know that when they present their bodies as a living sacrifice, here he's calling on all the things that we read in Leviticus and and, and elsewhere in the Torah about all the offerings and the sacrifices that were meant to be done on the altar. And he's saying you should sacrifice up your body. Your body belongs to God. And in saying your body, what he means is your whole self, everything about you, not just some of your time, not just uh, some of your hobbies. You're not just going to be a little more polite. You're not just going to give, you know, 12% instead of 10% or whatever it is. The, the idea is that everything of yours belongs to God. Remember the greatest command, love your heart, mind, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so then we have verse two here, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the word conform and the word transform both have the same root, form. Okay, that doesn't have to be translated for us. We know what that means. It means shape, right? What form are you in? Oh, the CON prefix, the CON prefix, means with, and the trans prefix means change. So literally what Paul is saying here is do not have your shape shaped with this age. Don't be shaped with the thinking of this age, with the values of this age with the worldliness, the paganism, the uncleanliness of this present age. Instead of having your shape, being shaped into the mold of the world, have your shape changed, be transformed, have your shape changed. How? By the renewing of your mind. What's the purpose of that? So that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In other words, let the word of God change your shape. So do you want to be shaped with the world, or do you want to have your shape changed by the word of God? What Paul is inevitably saying is, you will be formed. One way or another, you will be formed. You will either be formed with the world, or you will have your form changed by following Christ. Which is it? Paul gives the same choice to the Roman church and to us as Moses did to the Israelites. I set before you Life and death. Choose life. Choose that pleasing and perfect will of God. One other scripture that I pulled is, um, this is uh, from later in Romans chapter 13. Besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. And the daylight is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. I just love this idea of the night is nearly over, And the daylight is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is he saying? It's clear what he's saying. He's saying, choose life. That's what he's saying. He's echoing that sentiment one more time. The idea to choose life. And so um, that's the thought of the night. I mean, that's that's the big thing that I want to leave you with, not just tonight, but with this whole series coming to a close of The Wandering. And as we talk about that, I just want to give another little preview of some of the things with the uh, these ideas about discipleship. That's the big way that we trust and follow Jesus and choose life. Jesus has a lot of commands about a lot of different things. The Bible has a lot of commands about a lot of different things. But we are also commanded to help other people trust and follow Jesus. So as we're working out our own salvation, we should be helping others learn to work out their salvation as well. And so we've been looking at this discipling handbook and we've been looking at how a disciple grows that someone who doesn't have Jesus is spiritually dead. They don't have life and they need life. They can't, they can't choose life unless they hear about it. And so they can't respond to life unless you introduce it to them. So like the the seed sower in Mark chapter 4, we're called to take the, the seed, which is the word of God, and spread it wherever we can spread it. My friend Thad likes to say, well, this farmer's a pretty terrible farmer, isn't he? He just kind of throws it everywhere. Of course, he's joking. What he means is we, we must take the word everywhere. You never know where it's going to find good soil and grow. So people who are dead, they need life. They need life more than anything. Once they're born again, once they commit to repentance and are, and are baptized to to uh, show that they have committed to trusting and following Jesus for the rest of their life, at that point, they're just a spiritual infant. They're like a little baby, completely helpless spiritually, and we don't fault them for that. How could they know? They don't know anything yet. They, they haven't learned anything yet. They, 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 they don't even know what there is to learn. They don't know how to learn. They don't know what the Bible is. I told you before about my friend that I sat down to read the Bible with. I said, we're going to read something out of the New Testament. And he said, yeah, um, Old Testament versus New Testament. Like, uh, what's the difference there? <laughs> and I just thought, of course, that makes such sense that that would be like a first question someone would ask about the Bible. It's a question I had never in my life. Have even considered because I've just grown up with the Bible my whole life and I've just known the Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. I I I don't recall there ever being a time of me sort of not kind of getting what was going on. And because I've just been learning these things literally since I before I could form permanent memories. Some of my earliest memories are sitting in the nursery at Central Church of Christ and that painting, uh, you know, the paintings and stuff that they had on the wall in there. Uh, I just remember that is as, as just vague, vague flashes of memories of vacation Bible school and putting the little cookies on my finger and getting a little, uh, gr- you know, red Kool-Aid to eat at, at the break. I mean, those are some of my earliest memories. And so I was learning about the Bible before I was able to even form memories. And so when somebody who's an adult says, yeah, Old Testament versus New Testament, what's the difference there? It shows me how ignorant I am <laughs> that I've never even considered what the really sort of softball questions that a first a person first coming to scripture is going to ask. I've, not, I've just not even considered them. It's such a blessing to be able to study the Bible with somebody who's never read it before because there's so much there to discover. And I learned so much by discovering it with him. He was an infant. He, he, he knew nothing and he had to really be helped along and was totally dependent on me to show him how to learn. But so then somebody grows into childhood stage and they begin making connections and they start to grow as a child and they begin to uh, learn how to study on their own or learn how to pray on their own. They develop their own connection with God, their own connection with a spiritual family of some kind, whether it's a small group or begin attending a church or something like that. Hopefully you're able to provide a small group for them to be in. And then as a young adult, we stop being self-focused and start becoming others-focused. Nobody faults a child for being self-focused. No seven-year-old says, Hey, are we going to have dinner? And the parent says, When are you going to get a job, seven year old? Right? That doesn't happen. We don't, we have expectations of what a child is able to do and what a child needs done for them. Same thing should be with a spiritual child. We should be fine with the fact that they are self focused. It's just part of that stage and it's okay. But in the same way of biological childhood, we must grow out of those things. We must also grow out of spiritual childhood and become a young adult where we become others focused and God focused and become active in ministry and start giving back and start becoming interdependent with uh, the people around us. And then hopefully, Lord willing, we live long enough and love deep enough that we become parents and we help other people walk through this circle. I'm going to give you just a brief flash of the next page here. Um, And this is it says, How to Disciple. And uh, I know the text on this is super small, and we'll go over this on some other um, lesson. Uh, I, I've got some more things planned for after this, so um, keep keep watching in the, in the coming days. But, um, but I do want to just kind of briefly show you this. Again, you can find this PDF at northboulevard.com DBS. And uh, I'll go ahead and uh, pin that in the comments again, northboulevard.com slash DBS. That's for Discovery Bible Study. And it's a little hard to find the link to the PDF, but um, it is under the video that shows how to do um, Discovery Bible Study. There's two text paragraphs. In the second paragraph, there's a text that says Discipleship Handbook. It's just a text link. There's no big button or graphic or anything like that. It's kind of hidden. But if you click that, you'll be able to download this PDF totally for free, and you'll have all 20 pages of it or whatever it is. This is right in the middle. This is how to disciple. And this is the entire discipleship wheel that was developed by Real Life uh, Discipleship, uh, Real Life Church uh, Ministries in Idaho, uh, a big disciple-making um, uh, movement up in Idaho based out of uh, Restoration Movement churches. And so uh, what you see here, you notice on the inside is that wheel that we were just looking at. So there's the dead, the born again, the infant, the child, young adult and parent. That's on the inside. Now there's more on the outside. You have sort of these pie pieces, almost like a trivial pursuit play piece or something. And what this is, this is what the per- the person who is at the stage on the inside, it's what they need to keep growing. So notice the um, The sort of the top right quadrant there where where dead is just to the left of the green wedge. Well, their life is characterized by unbelief. And so the number one thing that they need is to have someone share the gospel with them. Yeah, they need your friendship and yeah, they need your love and all those kinds of things. But the number one thing they need is Jesus. A dead person, the number one thing that they need is life. Okay. If someone passes out and stops breathing, the number one thing they need is CPR. Okay. I'm sure later if you wrote a nice song for them and played it for them, I'm sure that they would love that. But when they are currently breathless laying on the ground, that is not the time to sing a song to them, right? They need life. And so that's what someone who is spiritually dead, it is critical, it is urgent that we share the gospel with people who are spiritually dead. Once they become spiritual infants, though, look, the whole rest of the wheel is about spiritual growth and spiritual formation and spiritual development. Our job is not over once we get them baptized. Our job has just begun in the same way that when a baby is born, a mother's job is not over. (laughs) It's in many ways just beginning, right? It might be difficult to get through um, your gestation and labor and birth, but that's just the beginning of being a mother. And so someone who is an infant needs to have someone who will share their life with them share new truths from scripture, share new habits based on scripture, and they would begin to learn to be obedient in those things. As a child, they need someone that's going to help them connect to God, connect to a small group or a family, church family of some kind, and then start to connect them to their own spiritual purpose. What does it mean to be in Christ? What is their identity as a Christian now? How do they choose life every day? How do they do that on their own? And what's the purpose in that? Then as they start to become others focused, they need to be equipped for ministry. I mean, let's face it. There are things to learn about ministries. There are things to learn about giving. Uh, There's lots of things to learn about helping the homeless or feeding the hungry or doing medical work or going on mission trips. Uh, There's all kinds of things to learn. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel when there's so many people out there that we can learn from and so many opportunities that we can jump into. And so that's the next thing is we need to provide them with opportunities to engage in ministry. And at some point, they're going to find out what I think it was Frederick Beekner who said, uh, your calling is where uh, your greatest desire and the world's greatest need meet. And how can we find that if we're not engaging in ministry and getting some of that experience and learning what's out there in the world, what the needs are and learning what we're passionate about, what we're good at, what sort of lights us up, you know. And so we provide those ministry opportunities. And at some point then, they grow in maturity and they're able to do ministry on their own. Once they are now interconnected and they are God-focused and others-centered, at some point, they should mature into being intentional and having strategy. And at this point, they're in position to become a disciple maker. And so someone needs to explain the discipleship process to them in some kind of way. That's what I'm doing with you right now. I'm, I'm, I'm just explaining the bare basics of the discipleship process. And once they sort of understand some of, some of the mechanics of it, the next step is to disciple someone else with the help of the spiritual parent. So who is now becoming a spiritual grandparent, right? So if you were with me and you were learning how to make disciples, one thing that I would do is say, hey, why don't you come with me to this meeting that I'm having? You can watch me disciple this other friend and you have have you help me and, and that sort of thing. And we do sort of a, um, I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I watch. And now you teach somebody else. That's how we teach someone how to do something. That's discipleship. And um, once discipleship is underway and you have that intentionality and that whole purpose that we're going to be disciple-making disciples, that we're going to help other people trust and follow Jesus, and we're going to help them teach others to trust and follow Jesus. Then once they are on their own, we're able to release them to disciple alone. And at some point, Someone who has made enough disciple-making disciples, they sort of back up and become a, a grandparent or a coach. And so they are coaching other people. And we looked at, or I talked about 2 Timothy 2, 2 last night, where Paul says to Timothy, take what I have told you and trust it to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. Four generations of believers, uh, from Paul to Timothy, to faithful people, to uh, others also And so at some point, those others also are going to become faithful people, and they're going to have to go out and they're going to have to find their others also. And it just continues and continues for generations and generations. And that's what we're looking at in real spiritual maturity. If you don't have four generations of disciples coming after you, good news. You've got a lot of growing still left that you can do no matter how old you are, no matter how tired you are. Uh, You're able to do this. You don't have to get people to move into your house. You don't have to quit your job or anything like that. It's something that you can do just by loving people and loving the Lord. And so uh, we'll talk more about these ideas uh, sometime uh, in the future. But uh, for now, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. So uh, as I said, I'm going to take a little break this weekend. I'm going to get all of the audio from these lessons uh, put into podcast form and see if I can get them all up this weekend. And, um, that way other people will have access to them and you'll be able to share them with other people. People can binge listen to them while they're going on their walks or doing the laundry or uh, vacuuming for the seventh time today or whatever it is. And, uh, then we'll pick up this next, this coming week, we'll look at some discipleship things and maybe we'll do another series after that. If everybody still wants to keep going, if you're tired of listening to me, no problem, but I'm having fun doing this. You guys seem to be enjoying the lessons. And so, uh, maybe we'll do some more. So I'll leave you with this tonight. And this is from the book of In the Wilderness, chapter six, the priestly blessing. I'll pray this over you and then we'll be done tonight. May God bless you and keep you. May God make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. May God pronounce his name over you and bless you. I love you all. I'm praying for you all. And uh, I will talk to you very soon. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.